please turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. I have just a small portion of the text that we'll be looking at today in your bulletin with an outline, but you should have your Bible open or whatever version you have, your electronic version, so you can be following along as I give you references. It'll be a a quick scan of several passages that tell this incredible story. You know, this year I am taking my cue for this Advent series from Galatians 4.4, which we had for our assurance of pardon. This is where Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son. The fullness of time, when all of God's planned details worked together to come to a certain moment, it was at that time orchestrated by God himself that his son came forth. That phrase, the fullness of time, has to do with God's orchestrating events over the course of centuries to bring about a particular monumental event. But he even orchestrates the smallest of events to build towards those events. Literally millions of actions planned and carried out leading to the exact hour of God's appointment for Christ's birth, but for all things as well. This describes the culmination of myriads of divinely appointed movements needed to happen, especially regarding Christ's advent. When we're talking about God's orchestrating events like this, we're talking about God's providence, the doctrine of providence, the Bible's teaching about God's providence. Meditating on biblical examples of God's providence as we have done, hopefully, will lift us from the moment in which we live and will provide us with perspective that will help us in the coming days. What exactly is meant by God's providence? Our confession does a great job of capturing the Bible's teaching on providence. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. The last section in that chapter in our confession has just two sentences, but it helps us best as an introduction to the book of Esther. As the providence of God does, in general, reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to their good. God had promised to send the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 to undo what the serpent did, to send us Christ. The rest of the Old Testament is the unfolding of God's promise by his providence. In the book of Esther, we have the story of God providentially taking care of his church. The enemies of God plan for the destruction of his people as they've done throughout the centuries and still do to this day. But the providence of God took care of his church based on the promises of God. The providence of God not only took care of his church in the days of Esther, but also because of the preservation of his people, the Messiah came and has taken care of us through his redemption. I'll read now just a few verses of this incredible story, this account of Queen Esther and Mordecai. From Esther 4, I'll read verses 7 through 14. This is now after the time in which the plan to destroy the Jews is known, and Esther has an opportunity to go to the, to the king and appeal. Follow as I read God's word. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries 
for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit's aid, please help us now as we consider the account of Esther in your word. Please teach us and encourage us by this display of your amazing providence. Where we might be anxious and doubting, give us confidence and surety about your loving care for us, your people. Please deepen our love for you and our trust in your hand of redemption, which has been secured by the gift of Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. The experience of Esther recorded in the Old Testament comes towards the end of the Old Testament timeline. You remember that Judah had been captured by Babylon, and then after Babylon came Persia. Persia inherited all that had been conquered by Babylon, and at that time the Jewish people were dispersed all around Persia, towards where modern Iraq and Iran are now. Many were there, north of where Israel is. So the Jews were dispersed all throughout. And by this time, the Persian emperor, the Persian king, wasn't too familiar with the Jews. They were so dispersed, mixed in with other people who had been conquered. It was quite a diverse uh, kingdom of Persia. And the Jews were there dispersed, wanting to go back to their land. And eventually, not too long after this story, through Ezra and Nehemiah, they're able to go back to Israel and build the wall and then, again, the temple. But this is in that time frame before where their future is very much in human doubt. Uh, It's very precarious. They have many of their former enemies who have places of power and prominence in Persia. And we see one here in this story. So that's the backdrop for Esther, when she finds herself in an incredible place, sort of like Joseph finds himself in Pharaoh's court, here is Esther finding herself in the king of Persia's court. What we discover in this big picture story is that seemingly random events bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. This is one example of how God's providence guides his promise to come to pass. Immediately for the Jewish people who are living at this time, but then for all of us who are beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant that brought us Christ, 
that the seed of Abraham would bless all the nations. This was a promise of Jesus' coming. So this promise had to be upheld because God bound himself to it. And Esther's the story of him preserving his promises through the most random events, showing his providence over every detail of those events. Let's go to the book. It's one of those books that the preacher should stay out of the way of, guide us through, but it's so vivid and colorful. I wanted to speak to you the way that it was written as best as possible. So let's go to chapter one of the book of Esther. And again, have it in front of you. It'll make it uh, the most effective way for you to follow. Chapters one and two introduce us to the old queen and then to the new queen. Now in ancient kingdoms, they were either expanding or contracting. There was no just settled out, let's agree on our borders and everybody stay inside their borders. Uh, in these days, you were either growing and taking more, uh, more people under your kingdom or someone else was encroaching on you. Remember, it was the Assyrians first, then the Babylonians, now the Persians and the Medes. And eventually it would be Greece and then it would be Rome. It's always the way it would work. And they would take over the other kingdom, uh, bring into its kingdom all that they had conquered, and then try to conquer more. Persia was exactly like this at this point. But it was a precarious time. Greece was starting to rise. And the king of Persia was Xerxes, called Ahasuerus. That's the Hebrew name for Xerxes I. Now, you might remember in Greek history, Xerxes went after, went after Greece, and Sparta stood up and tried to stop them, and really shook up the kingdom of Persia. So this particular king is a bit insecure. Um, he's trying to prove his power so he can get people together to join with him to go take on the Greeks. So the backdrop is this, this insecure, somewhat paranoid king who has a lot of power but recognizes another power's rising. He doesn't want to be the one that falls under that power, so he's trying to convince people by a huge party, a huge pep rally, that we can come together and take on Greece and expand the kingdom. And the way they did this in the ancient times is to throw a massive party for months there would be constant displays of the military, of their riches, of his wisdom, all the things he could show these other, these other surrounding nations and the people within that we could win this fight against Greece. So it's of utmost importance that Ahasuerus, Xerxes, looks really good to everybody. That's the backdrop when we come to chapter 1. Follow now as I read in Esther 1, the first few verses. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ashuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on, his, sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So uh, we're talking about a six-month party here to build up towards them taking on Greece. And when these days were completed, this is the grand finale, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So what he has here is a, a massive buildup. It's, it's a pep rally. Everybody's, everybody's heightened. He wants the grand finale to be an ultimate show that brings all the last several months into view. It gives them credibility. It couldn't be more important what happens in this final week 
Look at verse 7 now. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. The men would be in one area celebrating and the women in another area. This long buildup now comes to verse 10. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, later in the same verse, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So after a time of drunken celebration, he gets to talking with his friends, you can just see it happening, about how beautiful his wife is. Now these are the friends that he's just spent months convincing to follow him to war. And in a drunken state, he wants to show off his wife, probably in some immodest way. This is what seems to be the case. Queen Vashti knows what's going on. And good for her. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. What is he going to do now? His own wife won't listen to him. So how could these kingdoms around him, these cities and these armies, follow him into battle if he can't even get his wife to follow what he says? It's a terrible situation that he has built up. He could not be embarrassed like this. Seemingly random events, including the rash actions and decisions of an inebriated, drunk, despotic ruler, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Look at Esther chapter 2 now, starting at verse 2. After he has decided, Queen Vashti cannot stay. He bans her or exiles her. Now a new queen has to be picked. Now in these days, these, these kings had harems of concubines and such. But they had one designated queen who would be representative of their kingdom. And now Vashti was gone. She was that person. So advice came to him as to how to deal with this vacancy in the throne. Esther 2, verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Let their cosmetics be given to them, in verse 4, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Let's have a big beauty contest. Let's have a big uh, region-wide beauty contest where I can pick my new queen. This will show my power again. Now down to verse 16 of Esther 2. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal place in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther 
this young Jewish woman who lived in Persia, this young beautiful Jewish woman gets the eye of the king through this contest. And here she is placed into his presence. She has a cousin, an older cousin, Mordecai. He's the one who is more or less watching over her. And he's watching this occur. He has some official role in the court too. There's lots of employees. But there's no knowledge at any point until the end of the story that Mordecai and Esther are related in this way. He serves as a bit of an advisor to her when this all happens to her. Seemingly random events, including an ancient and Near Eastern beauty contest with hundreds of contestants, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Redemption is not random. Look at Esther 2. Verse 21 and 23 to 23. Another bit of God's providence at work. It's, it's mentioned here because it becomes important later. It's just something that happens, it comes and goes. Probably a situation not that unusual, but it's recorded for us so we recognize the providence of God. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They were planning a hit on Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, they confirmed it was true, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And here's the key. There is a diary kept of all the kings. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This foiled assassination attempt seems to pass without fanfare, but it was recorded. Seemingly random events, including a foiled assassination, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan to human view. Now, let's consider the rise of this enemy in chapter 3. A powerful and very prideful adverse adversary with terribly evil plans. This is part of God's providence too. Esther was queen, and Mordecai, her cousin, was some kind of an official member, either of the security detail or some administrative outpost that basically had their offices at the gate. That's what is descriptive there. After some time, we're not told how, a certain person started to rise in the view of the king. This man was named Haman. Esther 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite the son of Hamathatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. It seems like a quick ascent, and when you see Ahasuerus' rashness, it shouldn't surprise us that he would make such a decision so quickly. Again, he's paranoid and concerned, worried about his future. He sees this man as someone who can help him. He gives him great authority. Now, Haman the Agagite comes from a people who are historic enemies of the Jews. From the Amalekites who come from Esau. They had long had great conflict with one another. Now both in Persia, but not liking each other nevertheless. Haman didn't know who Mordecai was, but he became quickly aware. Look what happens in Esther 3, starting at verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, these are all the people who work for the king, Mordecai being part of it, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. 
but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, we don't know exactly why. It could be he knows exactly who Haman is and how Haman hates his people. It could be very personal like this. He could have just been trying to not disobey God's law by bowing down to people. Whatever the case, he feels convicted to not bow down. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He, he wanted to research it and figure out what was happening. And when he realized this is a Jew, he doesn't want to just get Mordecai. He knows who the Jews are. So it says in verse 6, So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. I know who they are. I know their history. I know what they've done to my people. And I know what I have a chance to do here. To eradicate the earth of these people. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Seemingly random events, even the promotion of a powerful and prideful adversary, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. The hatred of Haman was so intense that he hatched a plan to exterminate the Jews. He went to the king with his evil request, and the king, being in this state of paranoia, in this state of liking and loving what Haman was doing for him, seems to listen and give everything he wants. In verse 8 of chapter 3, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. They're everywhere. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They're going to turn against your laws, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that, is, that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now, by the time of Xerxes, for him personally, the remembrance of the Jews and their particular customs wouldn't have been well known. And this is why he relies upon an advisor like Haman, who tells him, these people will rise up and they will hurt you. He probably laid out for them their history and how they won these various battles and just built up the paranoia of the king that already existed. Verse 9 of chapter 3, if it pleases the king, let it be be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. I'll pay for this. I'll figure out how to do this. It won't even cost you anything. Verse 10. So the king, kind of in a Judas-like fashion, took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathada, and said, and the enemy of the Jews, and said, the money's given to you in verse 11. The people also, do with them as it seems good to you. Whatever it takes to secure my power, you go do it. You're my number two guy. Verse 12, the king's scribes draw up an official document. The thing to remember is when the king, who's equated to divine in his power, when he makes an edict or a decree and then makes it official by sending it out on his parchment with his seal, it's, it has to be done. If it would be reversed without some, some other legal means to do so, it would be another statement of his weakness. So the surety of this edict cannot be understated. It's clear that this must happen throughout the kingdom if this decree goes forth. It says in verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces, to all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, in every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. This is a divine edict in the minds of the people under his power. The letters in verse 13 were sent by couriers to all the provinces to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, even down to the day that it would happen. And a copy of the document, verse 14, was, was sent out 
The couriers went out in verse 15, hurriedly, by order of the king. Even in the capital, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. Now, my guess is they were drinking before that. But they sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What an awful turn of events. Total chaos and confusion. What just happened? Seemingly random events, including the evil plans of an arrogant, power-drunk, murderous schemer, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Now we start to see the providence of God revealed in the letter, in the document itself, in the account of Esther itself. We're given this heaven's view of how things are unfolding. The providence of God starts to become clear for such a time as this. When Mordecai found out what was in motion, he would have been at the gate, would have seen a copy of the decree pretty quickly. He knew what it meant legally. He was sure about the consequences. Look at Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Putting on these clothes were painful. It would not allow someone to rest. They would have to think and stay awake and mourn and pray over what was happening. And the ashes made them look dead or sick and people would notice. In every province, Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. They knew the meaning of all of this. It was a personal and public display of extreme mourning. Esther sees her cousin doing this, and she thinks to herself, Mordecai, don't let everyone know you're Jewish because they're going to connect you to me eventually. Let's lay low here. Esther's first thought, as any of us might think, let's just hide on this. They don't know we're Jewish. Certainly, the king loves me. So he tries, she tries to tell Mordecai to quit it. But she doesn't fully appreciate the dilemma. So through a messenger, she reaches out to Mordecai and tells him to stop it. Mordecai responds by showing a copy of the, the, the decree through the messenger. Look at Esther 4, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the, king, in, in, into the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death. Because Mordecai rightfully says, Listen, Esther, you're in a place where you could do something about this. By God's providence, you are in a place. You've got to go talk to the king or our people will be wiped out. And she responds in these verses, but you know what happens if I go in unannounced. He has no trouble killing any members of his court if they don't go in the way he says. She was scared. There's but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. I'm not even on his list right now. He's probably forgotten about me. He's wrapped up in a whole bunch of stuff. This is not a good time for me to go, un, go in unannounced. But then verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. They're going to find you out eventually. Think about this. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He recognizes the promise of God will happen. But for their immediate safety, it will, it'll, it'll, it will end. The overall salvation will come, 
but we will not experience it. Now he's talking on the micro level with the interpersonal. You've got to go and do something. You have a chance to do this. If you don't do something, you're going to die anyways. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe the reason all these random events have happened is so that you would be in this place to talk to the king at this moment. Seemingly random events, including the placement of Esther in the palace of the king and the placement of Mordecai in the gates of the palace to mourn bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Esther is scared and asks her people to pray. Verse 15, and Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to, the, to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The words of Mordecai no doubt rang in Esther's mind in her ears as she meditated over those few days fasting and getting ready to go talk to the king. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther gathered the courage to go and see the king in this build-up, this tension you can sense, this nervousness on her part, the fate of the whole nation resting in her actions here comes to Esther 5, the first few verses. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. The, the painstaking details shows an eyewitness gave this account. And you can sense uh, the pomp of this man, this presence, his ethos, the fear you would have to go into his presence. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. The tension eases. Esther was in. Seemingly random events, including the fickle affection of a pagan king, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. We come to verse chapter 6 and 7, where we see this providential irony, I'll call it, as it unfolds in a manner unlike anything you could possibly even ma- imagine or make up. This providential irony that now starts to twist in redemption is manifested. In verse 7 of chapter 5, Esther answered, My wish and my request is, and she pauses. And it's hard to know how much she had thought of before. If she'd want, Maybe at the moment she was so surprised he actually did receive her that he, she wasn't quite ready to say all that she wanted to say about that edict. So she says this, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now here's the thing. This is the part of the story. Haman doesn't know any of this. He's at the height of his arrogance. He's at the height of his rise professionally, personally, over the nation. He has no idea what's started in motion. 
He was so full of pride that he could not see any aspect of what was brewing. He only saw Esther's apparent favor as even more success for him. How much better could it get for me, Haman thinks, that not only the king wants me, but his best queen wants me in their presence alone, just sharing food. He didn't make any connection between Esther and Mordecai. He's too full of his situation. Again, chapter 5, verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Imagine. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath with Mordecai. Now combine his pride with his anger and his hatred. It just was more than he could take at this moment. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself at the moment, went home, and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast he pre- she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Haman is climbing as high as one could possibly climb. The king loved him, the queen loved him. There's only one thing. Verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and his friends said to them, I mean, what friends are these? Let a gallows be built. Go build some gallows. Do it tonight. Go build this high gallows so that you can hang Mordecai from it. Then go to the, to the feast of the king and love every minute of it. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So that night, get a hold of this, that night he has it start to be built. Can't wait till the morning. That night starts building it. The hammer starts slamming on the, on the nails. Then Esther 6, verse 1. On that night, the king couldn't sleep. Maybe he was kept up because something was being built. Seemingly random events, even the insomnia of a pagan king, Bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. The story happens rapidly after this. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. Remember that book that had recorded all the great things that happened in his kingdom? Read it to me. Why? So I can fall asleep. Can you come read me that book? You know, come turn on my sermons and, you know, that'll get you to sleep. That kind of a thing. He says, bring the memorable deeds to me. I got to get to sleep. So they start reading. And it was found... It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That assassination attempt, the king said, verse 3, what honor or distinction do we bestow on Mordecai for this? What do we do for this guy? I don't really remember. The king's young men said, well, nothing was done for him. And the king said, wait a minute, I hear something. Who's in the court right now in the middle of the night? Well, Haman, he just entered. I mean, Haman, top of his game right now, could not ascend any higher. And he wants to talk to you about, of course, he wanted to talk to him about having Mordecai hung. He doesn't say it, get a chance to say it, though he walks in. Let him come in, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman's like, this is awesome. It cannot get better than this. What more could happen? Haman said, well, who could the king delight more than me? This is me, obviously. So here, Haman, the Agagite, the would-be executioner of Mordecai, the genocidal enemy of the Jews, is now at the height of his pride. And Haman says to the king, well, for the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn himself. I mean, your own 
clothes. Let him, let him borrow some, king. And the horse that the king has ridden, uh, whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights in honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, what Haman had not been aware of, no doubt, are the words of King Solomon. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The king said to Haman, liking this idea, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, just like you said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Imagine, try to imagine the sense of the deflation. So Haman took the robes and the horse And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a difference a day makes. Then Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house in mourning with his head covered. Now he goes to remember his wife and his friends who told him to go build the gallows, and he meets them. Hopefully they'll give him some comfort. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his wife and the the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. You will fall before him. With a wife and friends like this, who needs enemies? And there's Haman, and this thing unfolds quickly now. Verse 14 of chapter 6. While they were talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that he was supposed to go to with Esther. So the king and Haman, verse chapter 7, went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And the queen speaks up, while Haman's probably sitting there a little bit relaxed, like, i got to think out what to do with this Mordecai situation. He's not thinking at all Esther's connected to this. And she starts to speak. This is just one of his harem. She's going to ask for some stuff. It won't be big stuff and and blah, blah, blah. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. What's going on? Hashuera says, What are you talking about? This is so extreme. For we've been sold, she says in verse 4. I and my people to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. And you could just see the king getting mad about this. Who would hurt my queen or her people? If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy. And you could just imagine her now point to Haman, this wicked Haman. Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath, verse 7, from the, wine, from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. So he just pours himself down at Queen Esther now. He's just groveling at her feet, putting his head right in her knees, no doubt. He saw that, that harm was determined against him by the king. The king comes back at this very moment, still mad, And remember, the wine drinking is a recurring theme here, which is a good warning for everybody. And the king returned from the palace garden where they had been drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he 
even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So ends one of the worst days in human history. But the Jews were spared. The messianic line was maintained. God's promises are upheld. Seemingly random events, even a squabble between a royal couple, a beauty contest in Persia, a lot of wine drinking, the rise of a prideful and powerful adversary, the insomnia of a pagan king, and an old book that hardly any, anyone ever read. Seemingly random events like this bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan to human view. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the, into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. It's true. Our redemption is not random. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, through this account of Esther, we are reminded of your faithfulness your faithfulness to your promises. You preserve the line of Messiah against your enemies. We see every detail of this story guided and directed by you, even though on the, on the surface it looks so bad, so hopeless. Yes, things seem random to us. Many of our life situations don't seem to fit in place, or we are confused about the purpose of it all. But your word promises your care, over every detail of our lives. Indeed, your providence does reach to all creatures. But so after a most special manner, it takes care of your church and disposes all things to our good. Your redemption is not random. We thank you for this through Christ. In his name we pray, amen.